and then a lot of different information in the letters. And this, to me, fits better with a time after Paul had been in prison in Rome when theoretically he was released before he was re-imprisoned. It's just hard for me to come up with a time that this really fits before that. That's probably the consensus idea about this. I don't think we are just, that's set in concrete. You know, if, if in fact he wrote a different time, that's fine. But that seems more likely to me that he wrote it, you know, maybe about the time he wrote First Timothy, after he'd been in prison in Rome and before he was imprisoned again to be executed. Thoughts and comments about that introduction? By, by the way, uh, do you ever read about Titus anywhere else in the Bible besides this letter? Okay, we do. I was going to say an axe. Am I wrong? I don't believe he's an axe. Where is he? I can think of at least two other New Testament letters where Titus is. Did he take the letter to the Corinthians? That letter we don't have, the painful letter, 2 Corinthians, and then was sent back there to help arrange a generous contribution. Mm -hmm. So he's, he's several places in 2 Corinthians. He is also in another letter. This was harder to get. Although he has a... I mean, he's not just like in the closing words or something like that. I'm going to guess not Colossians. I'm going to guess <laughs> you're right. Galatians. Galatians. You're right. Was that a random guess or is that... Oh, no. Yeah, notes. <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, you look. Uh, what was what was his role in Galatians? Remember, you're gonna kick yourself when I tell when you. It's the it's, was it around the time when he's talking about Peter and Barnabas? Around the time, not the time, but around the time. <laughs> Did he not circumcise Titus? He didn't. So he refused oh, to have oh, Titus oh. circumcised. He took him with him to Jerusalem, but Titus was not compelled to be cir circumcised, and the false brethren wanted to be, but Paul, you know, withstood them. So there are some other references to Titus. Yeah. So anyhow, well, that's uh, any any comments or questions on that intro. All right. Read one, one to four. Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to Godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God and cannot lie promised long ages ago. But at the proper time manifested, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Okay, these are the typical kind of letter introductions we have, though all of them are a little different, and often they say some things that will be reflected in the letter. Paul describes himself in two ways, as what? And if he's a bondservant, then he owes obedience. He ought to submit, and we'll see that theme later on in Titus. And he's also what? Yeah, he's an apostle. Of course, being an apostle of Christ, he has the authority to speak for Christ, to represent Christ. He's an apostle of Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. 
So what was the reason he was chosen to be an apostle? It was to promote and encourage the faith of these chosen brethren and to help them know the truth that's according to godliness. You couldn't know the truth that's according to godliness if it weren't for people like the apostles who had the message given to them by God to reveal. So Paul's got a key role in the faith of the chosen and the knowledge of the truth uh, that's according to godliness. Um, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie uh, promised long ago. Uh, long ages ago. So all of this, the the basis for the faith and and, uh, knowledge is the hope we have. You know, the hope's what keeps us going, what motivates us. And how do we know that the hope is solid? God promised. God promised it and he can't lie. Now, we're going to find out a little later there are others who can. I'll mention that in the letter. But God can't. God never lies. Are there things God can't do? That's a kind of a uh, philosophical conundrum. You know, that doesn't mean anything. God can't lie. That is, his character is such that he will not lie. Not like he d- wouldn't have the physical ability, but he never does. You can count on him consistently to be truthful. So if he makes a promise, you can count on it. So we've got a firm foundation for the hope of eternal life, which uh, God uh, uh, God promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested. You know, so this was promised, but now it's it's uh, been manifested, uh, his word and the proclamation that Paul was entrusted with. So, the, what what God had promised now in Christ you can you see it revealed and proclaimed, um, and and that's the message that Paul's teaching the these people that uh, Titus is uh, is bringing the letter to. Um, so um, he says to Titus, you know, so Paul, this is Paul's role. Paul's Paul's role is revealing and proclaiming this uh, hope that God had promised. And he writes to Titus. What does he call Titus? My true child and a common faith. What would make him a true child of Paul? Did he teach him the gospel? I'm guessing. And they had a father-son relationship. Um, It's okay to have spiritual fathers in that sense and spiritual children. Uh... I count a few that way in Brazil, especially. And uh, so it, that's a cool thing. You know, they, they had that closer relationship. And then he wishes for him grace and peace from God and from Jesus. Um, that's really the essence of Christianity is grace and peace. Thoughts and comments on those first four verses. In normal letters, what do you expect next? Commendation. Yeah, in the form of a prayer. A report of a prayer that does what? Praises God. And 
thanks him for them. Yeah. Typically, Paul will say next, I thank God in my every remembrance for you, for this, that, or the other thing, that he knows about them, that he remembers about them, that he's heard about them. So that's normally what he does. And occasionally he varies that a little bit. Sometimes it's kind of a praise of God, like in Second Corinthians or in Ephesians, though a little later in Ephesians he will also report on his thanks to God for them. But there are two letters that do not have anything like that uh, that Paul wrote. Galatians. Galatians and Titus. They Galatians is quite the opposite, and really Titus is too to a great extent. So what's the difference? Why didn't Paul report on thanking God for these brethren, Galatia and the ones Titus is uh, with? Yeah, there was nothing to be thankful for about them. They were so quickly deserting the Lord. And what about here? Where is Titus? In Crete. How are the Cretan brethren? Not so well. They are, yes. They are not doing very well at all. So no wonder Paul wasn't thanking God on his every remembrance of them. So when when Paul reports that he thanked God for the brethren, it wasn't just that he always says that about everybody. You know, sometimes we do that. You know, hopefully not. But, you know, we tend to just kind of, oh yeah, I thank God for you. Really? You know? Well, no, but I think it's a nice thing to say. You know, but Paul didn't say things like that. It's a nice thing to say. So here, I'm guessing he probably isn't thanking God for them. What would he thank God for? And we'll see that just a little bit later. All right, so that leads us to the first topic, and this is an important one. Uh, so five to, uh, do five to nine. Similar list telling Timothy these are the kind of people who ought to be appointed. 
Uh, what does he start with here in terms of the qualities of uh, elders that should be appointed? Uh, no. He does do that, but not first. Man. Ooh, okay, man, yes. Every city? Uh, yes. Oh, I, actually, he does do the above reproach. Actually, he does. <laughs> Sorry about that. Oh, I'm trying to go ahead of Well, he does it twice, so he does it in six and seven. I was looking at seven, but yeah, above reproach in what sense? In every sense. But in six, <laughs> what's he really getting at? He's being he's to be above reproach in what area? Family. His family matters. That's the first thing he he deals with. Is he must be above reproach the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So the first qualification that he mentions has to do with his family. He's to not be reproachable in his family life. Um, wonder why Paul would consider that so important. So what? Well, if he's going to be an elder and he can't control his small physical family, how can he be helpful to the church family? Exactly. The home's almost like the training ground for a person to be appointed as an elder. I mean, it shows his uh, ability to lead and guide and direct and nurture and bring up, you know... You wouldn't want an immoral elder, you know, a, a elder that, you know, kind of played around on his wife. I mean, you want one that's faithful to his wife, husband of one wife. And you want one who's raised good children. That tells you a lot about his character and also about his capability to lead like a family, since, as Debbie mentioned, the church is like a family. Um, do you remember when God sent Moses to go... Uh, uh, you know, tell Pharaoh to let the people go. On the way, what did God try to do mo- to Moses? Kill him. <laughs> it's like, well, why send him if you're going to kill him? Why was God trying to kill him? He hadn't circumcised his son? Yes. The need to do the will of the Lord in his family. His sons had not been circumcised. And before you go about trying to lead the whole flock... You're really going to need to deal with your family properly. So that's where he starts in this, not where uh, he started in 1 Timothy. But here he emphasizes the need to have a, a be above reproach in the family. Then he says the overseer must be re- above reproach as God's steward. Um, why would he call him God's steward? Because God's kind of entrusting people to him. I think that's exactly right. The stewardship are the is the flock is are the are the people in the church that he's caring for, and and it's God's flock. So this is an important responsibility. So he needs to be above reproach as God's steward, and he starts giving him things he's not supposed to be. You know, he's not supposed to be self-willed. In other words, not stubborn and 
you know, got to be his way or the highway. Not quick-tempered. Can you imagine a quick-tempered shepherd? He gets exasperated with the sheep every time he turns around and kicks them or something. That's not going to work. Not addicted to wine. Why would that be important? Yeah, what what drunk shepherd is going to be a disaster, you know. Uh, these are practical qualities, not pugnacious. What does it mean to be pugnacious? Um, like to fight. Yeah, not supposed to be a fighter. Not fond of sordid gains, so he's not supposed to be a greedy guy. On the other hand, you have the positive qualities. Hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout self-controlled, but especially in verse 9, he's got, this is kind of where he's going to spring off from to keep talking here. What does he need in verse 9? Faithful to the word. What's he going to have to do? Hang on to it. Yeah, not just hang on to it, but... He's going to have to teach people the truth, and he really needs to be qualified and capable to expose the errors of false teachers. I mean, if you were a shepherd of sheep, like the animal sheep, what would you have to watch out for? Bears. Bears and wolves, wolves, I think, is maybe a little more likely in most parts of the country, but, you know, bears can probably eat sheep, too. Um, So, yeah, I mean, you you really need to... uh, to be careful about that, and that's the responsibility of, of these elders. They need to hold fast the faithful word and be able to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those that contradict. Um, you know, an elder ought to be very knowledgeable about the Bible. That, I think, we miss sometimes. I mean, the elder's biggest role... Well, think about a shepherd. Protecting the sheep and doing what else for the sheep is the shepherd's biggest role. Feeding. Feeding. So the shepherds have to know the book. And they have to be well able to teach it and to refute error. I mean, that's part of the responsibility. The elders are the primary teachers. That's really their major role. And in Crete, you got a bunch of false teachers that need to be refuted. The elders need to be on the front line uh, being able to, to do that. You know, an elder that doesn't know much about the Bible... Is really not an elder. I mean, you know, you may call him that, but that's he's, his role is to be able to teach and guide spiritually. So, were they kind of like the Old Testament priests? Like they had to do stuff and offer sacrifices, but they were also supposed to do a whole lot of like teaching and instructing. Yeah, the priests and the Levites both. Yeah. And yes, I think so. I think that is a a major role for them, uh, as it was for the priest and the Levite. You need some people who know the word well, who are going to be able to defend the truth and protect other Christians. There are all kinds of false teachings that come along. And if we're not really grounded well, if, if there's not some leaders who know the book well, What's going to happen when these false teachers are really slick talking and they carry people away with them? So these guys need to be able to show that they're wrong because they know the book. 
Thoughts and comments through verse 9. Well, he's giving us more of the reason why he thinks it's so important to choose these elders to be able to refute the false teachers. Um, 10 to 16. For there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who must be silenced because they are upsetting the whole, upsetting whole families, teaching things that they should not teach for the sake of story gain. One of themselves, a prophet of their own will, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For the reason, for this reason, we prove them severely, so that they may be sound in the faith not paying attention to Jewish myths and commandments of men who turn away from the truth to the pure, all things are pure but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled they profess to know God but but by their deeds they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed whoa what does that sound like to you? <laughs> yeah. Well, really, it almost sounds not unchristian to talk about anybody that way, doesn't it? Why did he do that? I mean, wow. serious matter. It's exactly right. Now, there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers. And that's part of your problem. They're deceivers. They, they pull the wool over people's eyes. They, they are gifted at talking them into wrong beliefs and wrong practices. Especially those in circumcision. It looks to me like we're dealing some with the Judaizing teachers here, at least some offshoot of that. How should you deal with false teachers and deceivers like this? Do you need to silence them? Wow. I mean... Shouldn't everybody have the chance to have their say? <laughs> not if they're uh, not telling the truth. I mean, who are we to judge them? Maybe it's, maybe it's not our beliefs, but is it right for us to tell them they shouldn't teach what they think is true and what's beautiful to them? Well, there's such a thing as actual truth, and we're more concerned with that than we are with self-expression and what's true for you. Yeah, I mean, there is a standard. And these guys should be silenced. Don't let them have the floor. You know, these guys shouldn't be preaching and teaching. Uh, they, they, they need to be stopped. They need to be silenced. What are they doing? They're upsetting whole families. They're, they're worming their way into people's homes, more than likely, and teaching whatever their garbage is, and getting people to believe them. Uh, you know, it's, it's not only what they're doing publicly, but you can do a lot house to house. You can infiltrate 
And you can start drawing people away, and, and sometimes you don't even realize it. You know, that definitely happens, and you know, it happens. Who are the most vulnerable people to have their beliefs and faith overturned by false teachers? Uh, this is my speculation, but who would you say the most vulnerable people are? Well, younger Christians, for sure, because they don't have the depth of knowledge and understanding. I'm thinking about categorizing it a different way. Um, what about people who are very, like, trendy and up on the latest, you know, <laughs> <Okay>. teachings? And <laughs> there does seem to be a set of people who just like anything novel and different and exciting because it's not what they've always heard. That's a good point. I'm thinking about people who feel like outsiders. People who feel like, you know, we're not a part of the in crowd. And they're just kind of um, hurt that they're not more important, that they're not more special, that they don't have more influence or whatever. To me, those are the kinds of people I see being vulnerable. Who knows? What's their motive? The false teachers in teaching these wrong things? Money. They're teaching this stuff to exploit these people. I don't know if they're getting hefty donations or what, but Paul exposes their true, you know, purpose in this. And then he quotes one of their own prophets and says, you got a prophet of your own that says Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> Woo! I, I'm glad that he quoted this. It's from a guy named Epimenides, a uh, Cretan poet. Uh, and, I mean, he was kind of one of their, you know, I guess legends or whatever. So how can they deny it? It's one of their own guys that they really respect that says this is what they really are. How can they respect that? Do, do, they respect the poet. Yeah. Yeah, but if the poet said that, why would you respect we respect people who we respect who say things about Americans or about people in this church. You know, uh, I guess I can say this. Uh, I think I can on, on, the, on the, the tape. Uh, we're hopefully going to uh, be getting a couple of uh, brothers at some point to come and talk to us about elders. There's a couple of guys who who do that and do a really good job with that from what I've understood and we'd like to be preparing and thinking about that and so forth. But I was talking to a couple of guys and said, you know, I think one of our problems is we don't have a very good concept of what an elder does and what their role is and things like that. Now that's kind of a negative thing to say about us. But the guys readily agreed, yeah. They, they think that's true. I mean, you know, sometimes we may say, yeah, that is the way we are, you know. And like, so always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. This is pretty bad. Wrong. I don't understand that question. You think How would they respect this guy and like this prophet if that's what he said about them? Oh, we like all kinds of people who talk about, you know, Americans, we don't care about the impoverished and we need to be more about, you know, community service and like we respect all kinds of public figures who talk like that. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. Probably didn't talk to them and say it, like you're saying it. He probably said it more like Mindy's saying it. Yeah, I was. Yeah, oh, that happens all the time. 
Yeah. And it was true. Some people respect our president who talks like that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think we do, if somebody's telling the truth and they show our faults, if we've got a good attitude especially, we'll say, okay, yeah, I can see that. Um, now, I mean, I guess in some senses he wasn't saying that about these brethren, uh, but he's saying this is the characteristic of the culture and these false teachers are sure like this. I mean, you think about what he says here. They're always liars. Well, what did he just get through saying about the false teachers? What did he call them? Deceivers. Deceivers. And then he says they are evil beasts. And what did he say these deceivers were doing? What were they doing like an evil beast would do? Upsetting whole families. Upsetting whole families, exactly. They're just coming... Do what? They're rampaging about... Exactly. They're just tearing things up. And he says they are uh, lazy gluttons. Now what does that relate to? Absolutely. These guys can only think about their stomach and related desires. You know, they just want things for themselves. So, really, this quotation fits exactly how Paul had analyzed these false teachers here in Crete. This is the way they are. This testimony is true. You know, Epimenides hit hit the nail on the head. So, how should Titus deal with these false teachers? Absolutely. You don't mess around with these guys. You've got to take a strong stand and reprove them severely. We would have our time with that. You know, you're not supposed to say anything negative about anybody. You know, okay, you may not have the same belief, but that's what they believe, and their beliefs are good for them. You know, who are you to try to impose your beliefs on other people? And all that kind of stuff. Well, Paul hadn't heard all that, or at least he didn't believe all that. You know, there are people who ought to be sharply rebuked. There are people who are false teachers. I think we tend to think that everybody's just kind of misguided, but they're really good people at heart. You know, I know they may believe some things, they may teach some things, all right, but but they're really good. You know, is there anybody, you know, we wouldn't say is really good? Yeah, I know. I mean, we'll do that, especially the funeral with somebody who's been just an absolute disaster their whole life, but they were really good-hearted. You know, well, it sure didn't come out. You know, (laughs) that good heart should reveal itself in something. Not everybody's good-hearted. Some people ought to be severely rebuked, that they may be sound in the face, not not faith, not paying attention to Jewish myths, commandments of men who turn away from the truth. So again, I take it that this is somehow linked with Judaism, And, you know, there are certain kinds of people that everything they deal with is almost tainted by them. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing's pure. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. I mean, they are just just perverted and impure in everything they think and everything they do. They're warped. 
You know, they nothing's pure with them. They profess to know God, but what we do is a lot more important than what we say. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Uh, you know, what did He really think? Uh, you know, these people who find everything to be impure are detestable themselves. So, this is a really strong chapter. Absolutely blasting these false teachers. And you get the impression Titus himself needs to take a strong stand. And these elders that are being appointed, they're going to have to rebuke and reprove and show these false teachers are wrong. Comments and questions on all this? So... He's talking about Jewish false te- false teachers, and then but the prophet, one of themselves, was a Cretan prophet. So either they're Cretan Jewish false teachers, or else they're some in some other way associated with Cretans. Probably, it may be that these were Jews. There were Jews everywhere, right? So they may be Cretan Jews, right? Or they may be converts of these Judaizing teachers that aren't even physical Jews, but have been converted to to Judea, Judaism in a you know Cretan context. So are they professing to be Christians too? I think so. Okay, I, I get the impression that these guys are supposed to be some of us. And Paul won't have any part of it. They fit in way better with the evil beasts than Lady Gluttons. Yeah, absolutely. They're typical Cretans. Yeah. Are these different uh, things that they're teaching than your normal Jews in other places were teaching? I don't know if we know for sure. My guess is they've got their own wrinkle on it in Crete. Uh, we don't get a lot of definition of the specifics. Um, so, I don't really know exactly what they were teaching. He uses some pretty severe language for even going back to the Jewish law. So this could just be part of that. I mean, Galatians has no good way to, word to say about the false teachers either. Right. The Jewish myths, the commandments of man, right. all fits with what all the other Jews were doing, too. Right. Judaizing. Right. People who were supposedly Christians who were really trying to draw people back into Judaism. I mean, there there are definitely subversive people today. There are people who teach things that are just not right, and they're influential, they have impact, and they tend to draw people away from the truth of the gospel. You know, I mean, we are not very discerning about that. I think in general, we're probably like, well, you know, they're good people, and, you know, we all we all have different beliefs, we all see things different ways, and I understand that we're not supposed to divide over every little detail that we can't even define, but there is a standard, and there are a lot of people who are teaching it. And they're leading people astray. And they need to be silenced. we got to take a stand and say, this is not right. We might lose some members if we did that. Isn't that part of our worry? We might lose some friends. But 
They're upsetting whole families. Something's got to be done. And other things on the first chapter. All right, how about uh, one to five? 